Father, we just ask you to bless our time today. It's a critical time as we look at the end of the narrative that Luke constructed so carefully. And we just ask you to bless our understanding and get a, a glimpse of your glory as you plan out the ages and the things that happen. We give you uh, praise and thanksgiving for the opportunity just to study the word together. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, so in a lot of ways, Acts chapter 28 brings us to a natural end of the book. Uh, it also brings us to a really important moment in one of the major themes of the book. So uh, the natural end is, is that the final story of the book of Acts brings us to Rome. Um, we've mentioned from the beginning that Jesus himself gave the outline for the flow of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1. Uh, it tells us that the risen Jesus appeared to the, apostle, the apostles for over 40 days. And at the end of that time in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, the apostles being good dispensationalists, they asked Jesus a question. They say, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Extremely important question. Jesus does not say, he does not say, fellas, I've got news for you. There is no kingdom for Israel. He doesn't say that. What he actually says is, Acts 1-7, he says, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth so don't worry about the kingdom it is going to come but your job now is to take the word to bear witness of me here in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the remotest parts of the earth that's a big job to do before the kingdom comes the whole world needs the message of reconciliation through Christ so Jesus says start at Jerusalem then Judea and then Samaria and on to the remotest parts of the earth. Of course that work is still going on today. It's uh, nearly complete actually. We're, that's another reason we think we might be near the, the end because it's, we're getting pretty close to that. I find it really fascinating that Rome is the final destination of the book of Acts. That's where it ends. And of course it's by God's providence and of course God revealed, his revealed will to Paul was to go there. He was going to have him taken there. But just as a matter of the, the narrative structure which follows that outline that Jesus gave, it's really interesting that the capital of the world's longest living empire represents the remotest parts of the earth. Narratively speaking, Jesus' outline is taking us to Rome. I mean, that's how Luke is laying it out. Now, the Romans would consider Rome itself the center of the world. Everything would be measured by the distance from there to them, they, what they call the eternal city. But here Rome is the remotest parts of the earth. And that's because Jerusalem is God's eternal city. That's where Jesus came. That's where he died for our sins. That's where he rose from the dead. That's her, where he will return to reign. In fact, the Bible is very specific. He'll put his feet on the Mount of Olives. His feet will not sit on the Capitoline Hills of Rome. That's not where he's coming back to. That's the remotest parts of the earth as far as God's concerned. Rome is a remote place. It represents the, the lost world that the gospel has to reach. And of course, 
Paul fully intended to go beyond Rome. He was going to keep on going. To him Rome was just one more place on, on the path to the remotest parts of the earth. And we know from Romans chapter 15 that Paul was planning to stop there and visit the churches there and then he said I'm going to Spain after that and some his history indicates he even went beyond Spain to England so who knows. Of course the English are sure he got there. But Paul arrived in Rome about 27 years after Jesus spoke to the apostles and said start at Jerusalem. So it's about 27 years later. It's AD 60 now where our story is. 27 years and now Paul comes to Rome. And he comes in chains. He comes to stand before the imperial court. He comes to testify to Jesus to the very center of power over a large part of the ancient world at that time and he knows that God has arranged his confinement specifically to bring him to the attention of Caesar and Caesar's household as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 verse 22 he mentions how the gospel is being spread through Caesar's household that probably would include servants, family, all kinds of people there, soldiers. Rome didn't know anything about Paul but the Christians there did know him they knew all about him. In fact Paul's greatest letter, the greatest letter in the Bible, the epistle to the Romans we find in the New Testament there was, was written to them about three years before his coming there. So they had that letter, it would have been shared amongst all the churches in the Roman um, area and they're waiting for him. So let's start where we left off, left off last time uh, in verse 11. Of course Luke has to give us the travel details right so we're going to do that first and then we'll get into the meat of this thing. At the end of three months we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. He even describes the figurehead of the ship you know that's Luke he's so that is really kind of interesting. So the twins are um, Castor and Pollux who were the children of Zeus and they were sort of the patron gods of sailors so a lot of Roman ships and had those images on there not uncommon at all. So we're going to throw up a map. Did we get that up there? Yeah there we go. Um, so now you can see they're sailing up uh, from Malta to Syracuse which is there on Sicily. It's not too far. It's 60-70 miles something like that. Um, sailing from Malta up to, to, to Sicily where Syracuse is. Syracuse is a pretty famous ancient city because during the Peloponnesian War hundreds of years before Paul's time um, the, the Athenians had a huge disastrous absolutely disastrous defeat they lost an entire army trying to take over Syracuse and it became a really famous thing but now all these places are under the peace of Rome so there's easy travel and good relationships all through the empire. Verse 12 he says after we put in at Syracuse we stayed there for three days. He doesn't say why it was three days maybe the weather maybe they're unloading and loading cargo and then they sail on verse 13 from there we sailed around and arrived at Rhegium and a day later a south wind sprang up that's perfect that's what they need a south wind so they make a really good um, tra travel time on the second day we came to Puccioli. So Puccioli was the, the main international harbor that served Rome especially ships coming from the eastern side of the empire they would pull into there unload everything and make their way so still 125 miles from there to Rome itself. You follow the Appian Way, the great Roman road. Verse 14, and we found there some brethren. So there's Christians there in Puteoli. And were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. 
So that's kind of a general phrase there at the end. So at Puccioli there's Christians there who invite Paul and Luke and Aristarchus to stay with them for a week. And that's really nice but like you're thinking well wait a minute Paul's in custody right and they're delivering a couple of hundred prisoners uh, from what we can tell to, um, to Rome at this point. So how's that going to work out? Who's going to feed all these guys? Is the whole gang welcome there or what? And Luke just doesn't say uh, who stayed there for a week and he doesn't say why it was permitted or he doesn't say anything logistical about how that was done. So we don't know. We do know that Julius the centurion that's in charge of Paul already way back in Acts chapter 27 let Paul stay with other Christians when they were beginning the journey and they would just barely gone up to Sidon if you remember that Acts 27 3 it says the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care so it's probably something like that so Luke and, and uh, Paul and Aristarchus can go visit with these other Christians for a week probably with a couple of guards um, along with them because uh, from the very beginning the centurion Julius was very kindly disposed towards Paul. He liked him. Now we don't know anything spiritual that's going on there but think about what's happened since that first time they met. You know the first time they really got to know each other. Everything that happened after the Sidon thing and him letting, trusting him to go and then he, he did come back. Uh, everything would point to him trusting Paul even more and offering even, even him greater favor if you would. We know that 276 men were saved from death in a violent storm at sea because of the message that God gave to Paul about how to save everybody and God in effect said Paul I need you in Rome all of the lives on your ship can be spared if they all stay together and Paul told Julius that on the ship and he with his authority made sure that everybody stayed together. So he used his authority to implement Paul's words and that saved everyone. They didn't lose a single person. That's great. Then they spent three months together on the island of Malta. What does the centurion Julius see while they're there on Malta? Well the first thing that happens is he knows that Paul survives the bite of a deadly viper. You remember that story we talked about before. Well survive isn't even the word. The poison had zero effect on him at all. And so it was so dramatically weird that the local people thought Paul was a, a, a god. That's right. They thought he was one of the gods come to visit the earth. So um, the centurion knows that. That something rather amazing happened about Paul. So Paul's got a, a message from God. He told the centurion it saved everybody on the ship. Paul got bit by a viper, nothing happened to him, that's pretty weird, people thought he was a god. And now the centurion who goes to the house of Publius, who's the, the ruler of Malta, his father's really sick and Paul heals him. He knows about that. Not only that, after he heals him, he knows that people from all over Malta with sickness and disease come to Paul and he heals all of them, he would know that. So he's got to kind of like Paul. <laughs> Be pretty impressed with him. That's a lot for that old soldier to have to take in, you know. Who is this guy? And we're never told any kind of conclusion about Julius with regard to faith in Christ or anything like that. I mean, he's got to be pretty stubborn to not become a Christian at this point, but um, that's the human heart, right? But he does like Paul. Paul 
he really owed Paul his life. So for him to be kind and let him have a week in Puccioli with the Christians there, that's not really hard to understand how that could happen. So as the men make their way to Rome, uh, Julius accommodates Paul in ways he probably wouldn't do for other prisoners, maybe not even other citizens of Rome, and that's another point in Paul's favor with that. But maybe he had Paul's pledge that he would come to Rome within a week, and uh, and he just accepted that because he could read the kind of man that he was. So we aren't told how they arranged that. But Paul spends his time there uh, with the Christians at Puteoli, and then he moves on to Rome, and he's met by brothers on the way. So they've got a week, it's about 125 miles, so they could send a messenger to Rome, and the word would spread through all the churches, and these delegations start coming out as Paul's on the way down, or up I should say, from our point of view, looking at a map, up to Rome. So um, verse 15, the brethren when they heard about us came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them he thanked God and took courage. So two separate delegations, there's multiple churches obviously in Rome, they come out to meet Paul, they heard Paul was coming uh, from Puccioli, so they know where, where to go. So Paul was an apostle, you know. He's, from everything we know, he was the first apostle ever to come to Rome. That's a huge deal. Plus they'd had his letter. So they knew the greatest letter of the New Testament. So this would be huge having him come. So they're excited, they're going out to meet him. The first delegation comes as far as this market at Appii, which would be the, the forum of Appii, the Appii Forum, which is about halfway, a, l- a little bit more than halfway, about 40 miles from Rome. That forum did not have a good reputation. A lot of lowlifes hung out there. It's kind of like uh, Los Eisley in Star Wars. It's a bad place. But um, <laughs> the believers came because they, they wanted to literally meet him and escort him down to the city, and which is just a wonderful thing. So as they travel along with that delegation from the forum, they, they uh, come to a little village along the Appian Way there called Three Taverns. That's about 10 miles closer to Rome. It's about 30 miles from Rome. And a second delegation of Christians comes. Either is it, these are either people that started later or, f- or from farther out and had to took, didn't get as far as the other people. But anyway, they, they meet some more people. So there's a whole group there that, that are with him coming to town and probably a couple of Roman guards that are trying to figure out what's going on. But the believers came because they wanted to escort him there. So I like to picture this in my mind. It's, it must have been really joyful, you know, just really joyful bringing him the apostle or being visited by an apostle and how exciting that must have been. And some of these folks might have known Paul because people traveled from Greece and Asia a lot to get to Rome and that people going back and forth from there. So some of these Christians might have known Paul before as well. So it was good for him too. It says when Paul saw them he thanked God and took courage. So his spirits were lifted. Look Paul's a super saint right? But everybody gets down when they have to think about going before a court and the things that might happen to you that way. It, it bears on your soul. So he knew God wanted him in Rome to bear witness to Christ there. But situations like this always come with some trepidation. So he was really encouraged by the love of the brethren. All the more reason to um, write our sister and take care of our sister in her confinement. Verse 16, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So this is another privilege of citizenship. Uh, Paul could wait for trial in rented quarters. If, if you had enough money, you could rent your own quarters and you didn't have to go sit in some horrible prison in the Roman barracks with the guards and all that stuff. Somebody would be chained to him though. He would have a guard in his presence at all times. But he could have visitors and he could even have a lot of visitors and 
we're going to see that that's exactly what happens here. So imagine being a Roman guard chained to the Apostle Paul. Hmm? <laughs> You're going to hear a lot of interesting things. Interesting conversations. And it's at this point that the story shifts and we kind of move away from the, the travelogue part of it. So this is the part where the meat comes in. Luke writes this account before Paul ever went to trial. So he doesn't even know the outcome when he wrote the book. It's two years till the case is decided. So going back to what I said when we started there, there's a, there's a natural end to Luke's book and that is Rome uh, representing the remotest parts of the earth. That's the narrative structure of it. I also said that Luke brings us uh, a key moment on one of the major themes of the book. So that's the rest of what we're going to talk about here. What, what is that theme? Well it's the Jewish question. That's been running through the book of Acts since the beginning. What about the Jews? Christ presented himself to Israel as their Messiah and they killed him. And then he rose from the dead and the spirit came and Peter preached on Pentecost and 3,000 Jews believed it was off to a great start. God offered reconciliation to Israel through the very death that they caused because that was Christ's redemptive death. He died for their sins. The death that they had called for was really the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Their sin was included in that. So if they would accept him they would receive the benefits of that sacrifice. So in the 27 years since the crucifixion and the resurrection tens of thousands of Jews embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But millions did, did not do that. Most did not do that. We've seen all through the book of Acts the animosity of the Jewish community in most of the places where Paul went in Asia and in um, Greece. Sometimes even getting very violent. In fact Paul is in Rome because of the riot that happened in Jerusalem when he was there in complete innocence uh, worshiping in the temple and they made up stories about him and almost killed him right on the spot. And then the chief priests, the people that should be ensuring justice for Paul twice they tried to assassinate him. So there's a lot of opposition there. So Acts 28 is the final historical statement of the Jewish relationship to Jesus in scripture. Because they are a people of the covenant. It really matters what happens to them. God made promises to Israel, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants which can be fulfilled then or later. Later means after a lot of trouble. They have to address uh, Jesus as their Messiah. Is he the Messiah or not? And what are they going to do with him? So the first thing Paul does after settling in, he, he just settles in for three days and he sends out an invitation to the Jewish leaders of Rome, the Jewish leaders of Rome, to come and see him. He can't go to them because he's on, well we all know what lockdown means. Uh, he's on lockdown so uh, he can't go see them but they can come to him. We know historically there were at least 11 synagogues in Rome at this time. There could have been more but we have records of 11. Verse 17, after three days Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews and when they came together he began saying to them, so they come, they come. It's a significant moment and Paul tells them why he's there. Verse 17, brethren, this is his 
This is a, a short version of his speech. Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. So he's talking about the trial he had under Festus. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. That last line is kind of interesting. It's, it's sort of important. You know, if you get sent to Rome from somewhere, a lot of people when they get sent there, they try to make the case to Caesar that the people that sent them there are the bad guys. And there's cases where that actually got flipped the other way. They actually persuaded Caesar that the, the bad actors were the people that arrested them and sent them to Rome. So that can happen. And Paul is saying to the Jews, he's saying, I did not do that. And I am not going to do that. I am not going to bring an accusation against our people. He's, he's comforting them. The Jews are already looked at with suspicion by the Romans. So Paul assures them that he will in no way add to that suspicion for them. He will not turn Caesar against the Jews in Rome or Jerusalem. So his word in verse 20 is really designed to now pique their interest. So for this reason therefore I requested to see you and to speak with you for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So he's very careful here. He's being diplomatic. So he says I'm not a Jew that has gone against Israel. I'm not anti-Israel at all. He states plainly that he has nothing against his people or their practices. And he says he's on trial for the hope of Israel. And that's going to be his in to present the gospel to them to say that. So right now it's kind of general. Now they probably would take that idea of the hope of Israel and have a messianic connotation in their heads with regard to that because that is the hope of Israel. But right now Paul just kind of leaves it there. And he's wearing a chain and he's in custody he says for the hope of Israel. So I think their answer to him in verse 21 is pretty straightforward and honest it seems like it. They said to him we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. This Christianity thing you're here about we only hear bad things about it. But we've never heard anything about you. So, so Jerusalem probably is sending letters but they probably followed Paul but the winter shut down all the travel so and Paul was already at Malta way, way closer by the time those letters would have got there so he's there first. So they're saying we, we haven't heard anything about you. So we do know something about Christians. It's not positive but we're willing to hear from you. Well that's good enough for him. It's actually kind of wonderful. So they plan a day. They plan a day to let him put it all out there. To really explore his teaching and hear him out. And I think Paul would be very happy about that. Now Luke doesn't give us Paul's words to them on that day. But he summarizes it. <clears throat> he gives us the main topics. Guess what his main topics are going to be? when that day comes. So verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. So from all the synagogues there are sending their top people. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses 
and from the prophets, and then my favorite part is, from morning until evening. It was a full day. So he's got time to expand on that theme in verse 20, the hope of Israel. I'm in chains for the hope of Israel. And he can talk a lot about that in 8 or 12 hours or whatever. So um, he's going at it. So you know when you talk about the hope of Israel as the Messiah you can just think of all kinds of Old Testament passages. Let me just read a few of them again as I've probably read a million times for you. But he probably lectured from these as well as others. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. To a Jew, that's the hope of Israel. The coming kingdom kingdom of God on earth under the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 I kept looking in the night visions Daniel says and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the hope of Israel. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8. In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be in summer as, as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day the Lord will be the only one. And his name the only one. And the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate. From the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. It'll be the real Jerusalem. People will live in it. And there will no longer be a curse. For Jerusalem will dwell in security. That is the hope of Israel. So Paul took the whole day to teach them about the kingdom of the Messiah and all the prophecies that pointed to Jesus. You think Isaiah 53 was brought into that as well? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way but the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You think that was part of the presentation? Peter preached about some of these same things at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 all the things that we've already read in Acts Peter's sermon um, all that's presented in Paul's sermon in the book of Acts all those all the content of all that stuff would be in this so Luke's just giving us the summary subject matter and Paul doesn't have one shot he's got a whole day so it's not like here's an hour tell us everything you know it's here's eight hours or more tell us what you know so the Jewish leaders of Rome hear him out and they didn't stomp off and they didn't riot They didn't try to kill him or anything like that. Not his usual experience. So this is their opportunity. And because of the way the book is structured, it's kind of representative of the Jewish people here at the end of the book. The truth is all laid out for them. How how do they respond? How do they respond? Well, they're split. As happened in so many synagogues over the years as Paul was in Asia and then in Greece. 
Verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And I think verse 24 is saying that while some believed or were considering Jesus seriously, most rejected the message. And that's what you get from what follows here. They were arguing about it, and the interested people were in the the minority. So as Paul watches this sort of unfold, he decides to share with them a scripture from Isaiah to kind of close it out. And it was a scripture that Jesus himself recited regarding those who did not believe in him. So verse 25, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6 here. When they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Here's his word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through the prophet, through Isaiah the prophet, to your fathers, saying, go to this people, so this is God speaking to Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull and their ears, with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And then I would heal them. It's a warning And what he's telling them is they're in danger of having the same heart attitude that the the Jews had in Isaiah's day. Isaiah's the one that prophesied the fall of Jerusalem. And the fall of the northern kingdom as well actually. So we're talking about 700 years before and their heart is so much like that here. It's, it's It's a rebuke using the word of God to remind them of the danger that they're in. That they're like their fathers here. So it was just as true in AD 60 as it was in 700 and something BC. So here's Paul's final words to them then, verse 28. Therefore, because of that danger, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will also listen. And so these paragraphs being the final words of the apostle at the end of the last history book in the New Testament really describes or summarizes the next 2,000 years. It really does. It sort of sets the tone for everything to follow after that. The gospel, Christianity, will primarily be a Gentile faith. Jesus calls the age leading up to the end of the age from his coming to his second coming the times of the Gentiles. Jesus calls it that. It's the times of the Gentiles in a lot of way. For one, one way is they're, they're going to trample over Israel until near the end. The other way is that the faith of Christ will be a primarily Gentile reality. The gospel will be mainly a Gentile faith. Although there have always been in every time, every age, every century Jews who have put their faith in Christ. There's, but it's always been a remnant, just a, a small number comparatively. This is the way it will be until the end of the age when, when God moves dramatically and globally to bring the children of Abraham to himself as he promised to the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as he promised through the prophets in great detail in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 12 actually describes God doing that. Where he, the spirit of repentance and faith he, he puts it on them just like he saved Paul. He wasn't planning on getting saved either. 
But God poured the spirit on him and, and that's what he's going to do at the end in Jerusalem and, and many, 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 many Jews are going to come to him and fill the kingdom of the Messiah. That's what's going to happen at the end of the age. So it will come. So when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans they already had some of this information the church did there because he spent three chapters dealing with the Jewish question. Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. And at the end of that in chapter 11 he discusses Christianity's relationship to Judaism since the Jews are are a people uniquely chosen by God. And the question was which he starts with in in chapter 9 he says why don't they believe? I mean that would be the logical question. Why don't they believe in Jesus as the Messiah? How does that unbelief they're showing fit in with the God's plan and promise to bless them? The promise he gave to Abraham. Well Romans 11.25 Paul says I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery. Now a mystery in the Bible is something that's being revealed. To be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And here it is. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, then he says, all Israel will be saved. That's the ultimate end. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And then Paul says, quoting, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So God promised to take away the sins of Israel. Jesus does that in his death for sin and the spirit will awaken them to believe, Zechariah chapter 12, and he will remove their ungodliness because the new covenant promises that God will write his law on their hearts, Jeremiah 31. That's a key part of the new covenant and he will do that when the end of the age comes. Maybe, maybe soon, maybe soon. So Paul reminds his mostly Gentile readers in Romans chapter 11 verse 28 he says from the standpoint of the gospel they are enemies for your sake because they persecute the gospel. But from the standpoint of God's choice they are beloved for the sake of the fathers he says. And nothing can change that because in the very next verse Romans 11:29 he says for the reason that's sure is that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means that's a big word. You know what that word means? Cannot be revoked. So when God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about the future of their people and when he made all the promises and the prophets about the future kingdom under the Messiah, he's going to fulfill those promises to the Jewish people. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be taken back. So God's calling on Israel will not be revoked. It will only be delayed. So Paul is very upfront with them about this. The Jews are God's people. He loves them. But they are for the most part unwilling. And that's going to cause a lot of trouble for them. The believers in Rome had all of this information before Paul got there. And now Paul is talking to the unbelievers, you know, in this, in this last act there. So he lays it all before them. And that's how the book ends, the answering the Jewish question there, except for the last couple of verses. So finally the book of Acts ends just describing what Paul did for the next two years in custody. Verse 30, 
He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. What was he doing welcoming them? Preaching the kingdom of God. Same exact thing as back up there in verse 23. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And that's how the inspired history of the church, the inspired history of the church comes to a conclusion. And Luke tells us Paul was in custody in Rome for two years. So it was probably during that time that Luke wrote his gospel and probably about that time, maybe a little after that he wrote the book of Acts. We know that during this time Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon while he was in Rome during that time. Paul is going to be released in AD 62. Two years after that, just two years after that, Rome will be severely damaged by an out of control fire that rages for six days. It destroys or severely damages 70% of the city. Can you imagine that? Lots of people die in that fire. The emperor, Nero, blames the Christians. And that's the moment when, see before that Christianity wasn't of much interest to the Romans. They regarded it as a Jewish thing. But after that the Romans officially started to see Christianity as a separate religion from Judaism. And they started to viciously persecute it. Almost all persecution of Christians before that time was was from the Jewish community. And it was scattered and kind of haphazard. But after that it became a Roman mission to destroy Christianity. And that came and went and sometimes it was stronger than other times, different places. But when Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, the Roman state officially started to persecute the church. Now, (coughs) two years after the fire, so Paul's released in AD 62. The fire's in AD 64. Two years after that, AD 66 a war starts between Israel and Rome. AD 66 it lasts for four years. In AD 70 the Romans completely destroy the nation of Israel. It ceases to be a nation. They destroy the temple. They destroy Jerusalem. And there's a few people living there for a few years but it's not a country anymore. The Jews cease to have their own nation and were scattered until modern times. The Jews ceased to have their own country until modern times. A lot happened in the short time after the Jews of Rome rejected the gospel. God works in history. He really does. Sometimes very dramatically. The rejection of the gospel meant the suspension of the Jewish state but not its end. See for 1900 years everybody thought it was over except Christians that read the Bible carefully. Like I've got a quote in your bulletin from J.C. Ryle in the 1800s he's saying Israel will become a nation again. And of course he was right because he read the Bible. It's the only ancient kingdom that went out of existence that has come back. Israel. (coughs) Why? Because God has his plans. So it has returned and it's the most talked about. What, what tiny little nation other than Israel is talked about in the press all the time? All the time for, for 50 years. It's Israel. 
Who's the most hated little tiny nation in the world? Israel. The United Nations declares more things against Israel than any uh, North Korea which is like a monster place they, they don't say anything about that. China they don't say anything about that. Israel resolution after resolution after resolution condemning Israel. The Gentile powers hate Israel even today. But the times of the Gentiles as Jesus said will come to an end. And God will fulfill his ancient promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Abraham's descendants will dwell securely in the land under the Messiah. Jesus. And so now we wait and we work preaching Jesus and the kingdom as we go. When will it come? It might be soon. Might be longer. But our world does seem like it's rushing somewhere. I mean it really feels like that doesn't it? But the end is already determined and the same Jesus you read about in the gospels the Lamb of God will come as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to fulfill God's promises and establish his glorious kingdom over the entire world. And he will remake the world in righteousness and his capital will be Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord we thank you for your word. It's so clear what you're about. We thank you so much for a gospel that rescues souls from condemnation before your throne. And we pray that as this unfolds we will be faithful to love and witness to Jew and Gentile alike to bring people into your fold until that day when you come to bring your righteous kingdom. Thank you for all the good things you've done and how you've laid out so much for us to know in advance. Much of it already being fulfilled and more to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.